I'm David Crow, and this is episode 255 of The Infectious Myth. Email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com, crow with an E. Like our page at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth, and join our discussion group at facebook.com slash groups slash theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at infectiousmyth. Listen Tuesdays at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on prn.fm or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or other podcast programs. You can listen to any of the last five episodes over the phone with the U.S. number 701-719-0990. PRN.FM has voicemail. Call 862-800-6805. And as well as a message or question for the show, leave your name and indicate that it's for the infectious myth. If you dial either of these numbers, long-distance charges may apply. I don't know that you're a listener until I hear from you. Send me a message letting me know how you stay in touch with the show and what you like about it. If you include your mailing address, I'll send you a little thank you gift, one of the bookmarks I make by hand using my own photographs. I do really love to hear from my listeners. Don't be shy. You can make a one-time donation to the expenses of the show via PayPal using the email david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com or commit to monthly donations at patreon.com or libericate liberapay.com, where we are also Infectious Smith, one word. We appreciate all our listeners, but if you want this show to continue to grow and improve, please consider paying a small amount for the information that you are gleaning. If you'd like me to speak at a meeting, meeting of an organization you're a member of, I guess it's going to have to be a virtual meeting for the next little while, on any topic that you think I have an interesting and worthwhile opinion on, I'd be happy to discuss this with you. I appreciate you commenting and suggesting guests. I appreciate your financial support as well. Thanks for listening and for recommending this show to your friends. One important uh, feedback this week is a correction from Skep, sent to me via email. I was listening to your excellent interview with Dr. Kaufman. Let me just criticize one single point. When you state that there have been death spikes in Italy, there have not. It's a huge lie spread by the National Statistics Center directed by an idiot with no mathematical competence whatsoever. And he, he gave me uh, a link to an Italian report, both from the Statistical Center and from the ISS, which produced the report on um, COVID-19 deaths, on the, on the first 2003 deaths. Please read the methodological note towards the end. Normally, it takes ISTAT, the, the uh, statistical organization, 10 months after the end of any given year to come up with definitive statistical death data. This time, for the first time in history, they've been allowed to spread death data in near, near real time, a physical and mathematical impossibility. Allowing for this miracle for a moment, which makes no sense because local county offices are extremely slow here in reporting definitive data, as families take ages to communicate a death to them, and they themselves take ages to process the data and send it to Rome. But anyway, out of 7,904 counties in total in Italy, ISTAT has arbitrarily chosen only 6,866 for their extrapolations, eliminating from their count about 1,000 counties where there has been a decline in deaths. That's how they came up with the overall spikes, by way of fraud. And also, the local spikes at this point are extremely dubiously arrived at. They clearly state that their provisional data has no statistical value whatsoever, pending further future elaboration and checks. 
I therefore beg you to please rectify that statement of yours, lest your listeners fall into the trap of believing in data accuracy, when in fact those alleged spikes in mortality are the same type of lie as with PCR tests, et cetera. Well, thanks for that correction, Skip. It's true that for statistics on mortality, we really need to wait. Uh, unfortunately, you'd like to know now whether there is an increase in mortality in a particular area, but gathering mortality in real time when you haven't done it before. Uh, there is a, a European survey for doing this, which seems reasonably accurate, but uh, at the national level, it seems that this hasn't been done, and so uh, putting together a quick system to do it, especially with the elimination of uh, data that might show the opposite of what you want to show, is definitely a problem, so thanks very much. Now I think it's time to talk about antibody testing. Many people now want to know how many have been silently infected in the general population, how many are immune, and how this affects the fatality rate. This requires antibody testing, and now there's at least as much interest in this as in the RT-PCR RNA testing that has been used since the beginning of the so-called pandemic to declare someone infected. So a little review of the tests that we'll be talking about. Since COVID-19 is alleged to be an RNA virus, it's believed that the RNA will be in your body as soon as you're infected. The first viral particle will contain RNA. RT-PCR is an ultra-sensitive test capable of reliably detecting as few as five molecules of RNA in a sample and possibly could be triggered on one molecule and therefore should be positive almost immediately after infection. Although it has been seen that depending on where the sample is taken from, the uh, chance of it being positive can be lower or higher. I, this is the reason why they're mostly taking nasal swabs now, because those are give the highest rate of positives. Whether those are true positives or not is, is another question. The second type of test we'll talk about um, is for IgM antibodies. These are believed to be produced by the body as generic infection fighters soon after infection. An infected person will not be IgM positive immediately, but within a few days. These antibodies persist for a while, even after the infection has been resolved, but then fade away. Finally, IgG antibodies are believed to be produced by the body as very specific fighters of a particular invader, such as COVID-19. They may take longer than IgM to be produced, but persist long after the infection is resolved, possibly for a lifetime. So it's looking at the IgG antibodies that scientists usually say this person is immune. So the, the data that I used for talking about antibody tests, <clears throat> and this is also in an article on my uh, theinfectiousmyth.com website, the data is based on a review of all the antibody tests approved by the FDA under emergency use authorization, and a list of surveys of um, antibodies in various populations maintained by a third party, and in addition, uh, a number of medical papers as well. And my article is uh, fully referenced, so you can find all of the papers, and I think in almost every case, I provide a URL so you can actually read the article for yourself. The only jurisdiction that I know of that has a formal structure for approval of antibody tests is the United States. But until recently, it was a complete joke. 
as the test manufacturers did not have to provide test validation data. Now it's only a partial joke as validation must be provided, validation data, but the FDA can only do a paper analysis. And in reality, they're probably not going to do very much except check through the pieces of paper, make sure that it looks okay in terms of what they included for validation, uh, but they won't be asking any hard questions about, did you really do this test? Is this really the data you found? Can you send us some of your samples so that we can retest them ourselves? They're not going to do that. Imagine if automobile manufacturers had to build cars to certain U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, fuel efficiency standards, but rather than sending a car to the EPA for testing, they could do it at their own facilities and just send the results in afterwards. Then there would have been no need for Volkswagen and other uh, manufacturers to write software to fake the fuel efficiency by running the engine differently under testing conditions. An RNA viral disease has a theoretical timeline and I'll be focusing on this timeline, so let's go through it. The different phases. The first phase, pre-infection, during this phase, there should be no tests positive. No RNA, no IgM antibodies, no IgG antibodies. Infection, which is not really a phase, it's a moment in time, uh, possibly a few seconds while a, uh, a virus particle is sucked up your nostril. RNA should be detectable by RT-PCR almost immediately, as soon as the infection takes a foothold. Incubation is a period during which you will be RNA positive. You will not have symptoms. IgM antibodies should become detectable within a few days, and also possibly IgG. A phrase I'm calling symptomatic resolution starts when you develop symptoms. By this time, you should have RNA, IgM, and IgG detectable. Uh, you have symptoms, and if you're lucky, the symptoms later re resolve. There are a lot of people, the majority, possibly the vast majority of people who are COVID RNA positive, who have what I'm calling an asymptomatic resolution phase. So there will be no symptoms, but you should also be positive for RNA IgM and IgG, and somehow your immune system, without showing any signs of external activity, is fighting off the virus. And then in both cases, you end up in the same place, which is cure. This means that there's no functional virus left in the body. So the person should now become RNA negative. IgM and IgG antibody tests will be positive. One problem with this is it's admitted that RT-PCR tests may produce false positives due to non-functional RNA left over from the infection or other reasons, and it kind of also ignores the risk of false positives, which at present is completely unknown. As I mentioned before, there's a Chinese paper that estimates that 80% uh, of positive tests amongst asymptomatic people are false positives. But for this theoretical timeline, we'll just ignore that awkward uh, fact. Then what we can call the post-infection period, uh, IgM antibodies will start to wane and eventually disappear. The person is left with just IgG antibodies, which provide immunity, possibly lifelong. In my paper, I include a, a couple of graphs which illustrate that uh, scientists are very confident about these 
this sequence of events, but they don't all agree on what they are. So in the first graph from a test manufacturer named Diazyme, um, it's, it's very much based on calendar weeks, as if the virus had a, or as if your immune system had a week-long clock. So on day seven, it says IgM antibodies will become detectable. And not until day 14 will IgG antibodies become detectable. By day 21, the IgM disappear. By day 28, the patient has recovered. And now the IgG antibodies remain in the blood and provide long-term, possibly lifetime immunity. But in the Journal of the American Medical Association, um, again, specifically talking about uh, COVID-19, uh, they're not so fixated on uh, weeks, um, but they say sometime during the second week, both IgM and IgG antibodies should arise at the same time. And then they show the same thing, that IgM antibodies decline, but IgG antibodies remain. Uh, some of these graphs also show that when you're rechallenged, your level of IgG antibodies goes up again, and so you will actually end up with a stronger immune, um, uh, stronger immune response if you're challenged again, which is another thing that calls into question. If the mainstream theory is right about antibodies uh, protecting people from being exposed to uh, COVID-19 stops them from this increase in the strength of their antibody response. However, I will show that this theoretical timeline is not really supported in practice. Now, the first thing I found kind of amazing is that in the pre-infection period, there should be no positive test results. And of course now, it's very difficult if you have a sample from say January or February to say that that sample was not infected because people could say, well, you know, you had a silent infection and you were infected, so the presence of antibodies uh, is not incompatible. But what if you had blood samples from 2019 or earlier? And indeed, some people tested these blood samples. The most shockingly high numbers were um, a survey of blood donors in the Netherlands. When they looked at combined antibody levels, they found almost 14% were positive, combined old uh, combined antibody levels in old blood samples 2019 or before. And even when they just looked at the IgM antibodies, they found almost 11% uh, positive. And some of the test manufacturers in their validation routines found reasonably high levels. So a company called Celex found 4.4% of the old samples positive, ChemBio 3.6%. Others had numbers down in the less than 1% level. But even so, if you take 1% of a population like 330 million Americans, you still have 3 million people who would have falsely positive antibody tests on old blood samples. Submitted to the FDA had a series of IgG antibody test results uh, grounded on the date of start of symptoms. One of the problems with all of these was uh, that almost all of these was that they were not the same people. So if they said there, you know, there were three tests done on day zero of symptoms 
and two were IgG positive, and then on day one of symptoms, it was seven people. That's a different seven people. And so there's nothing like a timeline. So you don't know, for example, if somebody was positive on day zero, and then negative a week later, and then positive again in two weeks. Um, you, you can't tell that at all, because the, the data is from a variety of different people. It's almost like they did antibody tests kind of randomly, and then once they did an antibody test, they'd say they'd look up the date of symptoms. And so they might do 20 antibody tests on, say, the 1st of March, and they would all be actually a different number of days after the beginning of symptoms. There were some tests that seemed to have quite high levels of negative tests, even after a significant number of time. Significant amount of time. So the orthovitreous test, for example, 8% um, of uh, IgG tests were negative 12 to 17 days after the beginning of symptoms. And during 18 to 30 days, there were even more people negative. 17% of tests were positive. Uh, in the Wadsworth test, this is Wadsworth is a New York government lab. 40% of samples who were known to have been RNA positive for 11 to 15 days were negative. And this went up in the 16 to 20 day periods to 43% and dropped to 12% for more than 20 days. But that still is a lot of people who were IgG negative. So these are people who've, who've been infected, if we can believe the RNA tests, but are now IgG negative. Now, does this indicate a problem with the test, or does it mean that the IgG antibodies are not always developed? Or maybe there's some different antibodies that are developed that are protective. It's very difficult to say what this really means. It's also obvious that the tests all gave very different results. Some were IgG positive on everybody from the very beginning, some it was sporadically positive and later later they were positive for everybody. Some were never positive for everybody. So the tests are clearly not all measuring the same thing or not with the same level of sensitivity. So the test that is chosen for an antibody survey will significantly influence the data that you get. And yet, no matter which test is chosen, the people using it seem to assume that it's absolutely uh, perfect. A scientific study from Wuhan, China on 85 patients was perhaps a little bit better designed than the sort of ad hoc studies done by the uh, test manufacturers. They found that the majority of samples had IgM antibodies detected from the first day through 30 days or beyond, but there was no time when all the tests taken were positive. On day 19, they hit 94%, but it then declined. Now, does that mean that the amount of IgM antibodies are declining? It's not clear. They didn't get to the point where all the IgM measurements were negative. IgG samples, on the other hand, that were taken on day 30 or later were 100% positive, but they only tested 14 out of 85 patients. So they had no proof that the remaining uh, majority of the patients actually had IgG antibodies. Prior to the 30 days, all groups of samples had a significant number of people negative for IgG antibodies. So in summary, for much of the test validation document, 
There were a mixture of positive and negative IgG and IgM test results over much of the time tested. And for some of the tests, right up to the end of the period, this could be due to large variations in the development of antibodies in each person, false results from certain test kits, or both. What I call the asymptomatic resolution period is also pretty much invisible. For somebody who's, uh, who, who never has symptoms, there's no difference between the incubation period and the asymptomatic resolution period, except possibly in the actions of um, the antibodies. But given that you don't know in the vast majority of, of people when they were infected, it's pretty hard to distinguish uh, these periods. And, it's, and even if you measure IgM and IgG antibodies, you don't really know what your baseline data is. You don't know if you're measuring the level of antibodies one week after infection or two weeks or three weeks. In the post-infection period, IgM antibodies should disappear. This is, this is a dogma that everybody agrees on. But none of the tests actually found this. It may be that they didn't follow long enough. Uh, the ChemBio test validation, for example, found IgM on the last day they tested, which was 21 days after symptoms. And if we give um, a week for the incubation period, that's a month after infection, uh, maybe they should have measured up to two months or three months. The survey of 85 patients in Wuhan, China, followed patients for 30 days and did not document the disappearance of IgM. And again, it's not 30 days from infection, it's 30 days plus whatever time elapsed between infection and uh, the development of symptoms or the hospitalization. The other possibility we can't eliminate is that some people never have IgM antibodies. Uh, in, in some cases, the, the tests will measure IgM and IgG, and if you have either antibody, you're considered antibody positive, which could mask the possibility that some people never have these antibodies. And again, if, if some people who are infected with COVID-19 never have IgM antibodies, why are we bothering to measure them? Another thing that should never happen is that the antibodies test should not be positive on people who were never infected. So for example, somebody might be hospitalized for symptoms that are, quote, COVID-like, but given that there are no unique symptoms for COVID, the majority of people with COVID-like symptoms are RNA negative. Now, it's possible that in the past, that person was infected, possibly with an asymptomatic infection, and that's why there are antibodies in these people, but it seems a bit unlikely. And yet, there were a reasonably significant number of, of RNA-negative people tested who were antibody positive. So for example, in a paper by Wu from China, among hospital patients who tested RNA negative, 10% uh, were positive. The same study looked at returning workers. You can't return to work in China unless you have negative RNA tests. And on some of these people, they ran antibody tests as well, and they found 10% positive. Uh, ChemBio's test validation also found 10% positive, and the Wadsworth test found 3%. Uh, another paper by Xiang, which looked 
separately at IgG and IgM antibodies found 24% of RNA-negative people uh, to be antibody positive on IgG and 25% on IgM. It's hard to say, okay, all of these people had silent infections a month or two before, didn't realize that they'd been infected, and that's where the antibodies come from. It's possible, but seems unlikely. One of the test validations from a company called ChemBio had an interesting experiment. It's important to understand that just like RT-PCR, antibody tests are not binary. There's generally a color change can, that can be measured in one of two ways. You can either reflect um, a certain frequency of light off the antibodies because the antibody test is bound to a color-changing molecule, and if there is um, an antibody-antigen reaction, you get more color change. So you can have what's called reflectance, the amount of light reflected, <coughs> or you can shine a light through, in which case it's called optical density. In the case of ChemBio, they used reflectance, but it's, it's really the same thing. Now, if you dilute the blood sample by half, <coughs> you would expect that the reflectance would drop by half the density of the color would drop approximately in half. And it's true that on the, the first dilution, so they diluted a sample of blood in half, the reflectance dropped from 36 to 16. Half of 36 is 18, so that's pretty close. But then they had three more dilutions, diluting by half each time, and the reflectance stayed between 11 and 16. And then on the fifth dilution, it rose to 24. Now, 25 is the arbitrary number used as the cutoff. So on the fifth dilution, they now have 1 32nd of the amount of, of uh, antigens, antibodies, in the sample. And all of a sudden, it's almost positive again. They did this to a second sample. And here, they diluted the sample by 2. And the reflectance doubled, which is, should be impossible. If you dilute, it should half, not double. No other test validation included a similar experiment, but this doesn't give you a lot of confidence in the accuracy of the tests and certainly the quantification of antibodies. You obviously can't, with the ChemBio test, say that you know if you have double the reflectance, you have double the quantity of antibodies. It doesn't even work for a single sample where you're absolutely controlling the, uh, the results by, by a predictable dilution. Some people thought that maybe there was going to be a relationship between the antibody quantity and the severity of illness. So one paper divided people into, a, into two groups of those with mild symptoms and those with severe symptoms. And then they looked at the uh, antibody quantities, what they thought was quantities m based on the amount of um, light that they found. And they concluded serum antibody levels were not correlated with disease severity. Now, it may be that serum antibody levels are correlated with <laughs> disease severity, but it could just be that the test isn't accurately measuring those levels. It could also be that the test is not accurate and serum antibody levels are not correlated with disease severity. 
They also divided the patients into two groups, those with or without comorbidities. So those who had other serious illnesses at the at time of hospitalization and those who didn't, and there was again no pattern between, uh, no obvious difference between those two groups of patients. Another thing that the tests did was to look at cross-reactions with other diseases. And in some, uh, in some cases, they found uh, a significant number of the small number of samples that they tested, testing positive on the COVID-19 antibody test. Uh, for example, the Wadsworth test was tested on five HIV positive samples and one out of five, 20%, uh, was positive. Euroimmune uh, tested respiratory syncytia virus samples and found one out of three positive, 33%. Um, Euroimmune also tested people who had autoantibodies and autoimmune disease, and they found one out of 10 positive. There were quite a few more that were found to be positive, but we have to consider two things. First of all, as you can tell, the number of samples usually is, is quite low. If you only test five samples and they're all negative, that doesn't prove that cross-reactions aren't possible. It just proves that, um, you know, something like less than 20% will test positive at, at worst. It doesn't prove that cross-reactions for that condition will not occur. And secondly, a fairly small number of conditions were tested, and each manufacturer chose uh, a different group of cross-reactions. So we really don't know that if in, in general usage that this test wouldn't produce a large number of cross-reactions. So let's summarize a review of antibody test validation data. Manufacturers are responsible for providing this data, and they know what they need to provide. So no manufacturer who's at all intelligent is going to submit data with major red flags. They have the time to tweak things until they can get everything to look good. So uh, this, is, this is not necessarily reflecting usage in practice, where you, you take some blood, put it in the test, run it, and that's it. There's really no way to validate the manufacturer validation data. There was nobody there to watch when they were doing the tests to make sure that they wrote down accurate numbers. There's no consistent set of validation tests that all manufacturers perform. Uh, time series that show the decline of IgM antibodies are not provided in any case. There, there were still IgM antibodies detectable at the end of the process. Maybe they just needed more time, but there's certainly no evidence that IgM behaves in the way they say it, it is. When information is provided over time, in all but one case, it's not for the same people. There was a, a small number of samples on the Abbott test, which were maybe six samples per person over um, maybe a week or two. Nobody else had information like that. Timing of antibody results is usually from the date of first symptoms or the date of testing RNA positive, not from the date of infection, which could be considerably earlier. 
only a limited number of conditions were searched for cross-reactions and only with a tiny number of samples. I think we can say that because the tests were validated by the manufacturers in ideal environments, by people extremely uh, experienced with the test uh, technology, that when used in practice by purchasers of the tests who have much less knowledge, that the performance will probably be lower. In other words, the number of false positives and negatives will increase. So after reviewing a whole bunch of test uh, validation documents that were submitted to the FDA, I turned my attention to population surveys. And so this is examination of a group of people uh, to look for various types of antibodies in the population. In many of the cases, the type of antibodies was not specified. Sometimes it was IgG or IgM separately. Sometimes it was combined antibody levels. One thing we can say about the populations being surveyed is that they were all very different, and I don't believe in any case they were truly random. There were some random household surveys, but they allowed multiple residents in one household to participate, which reduces the randomization or eliminates it depending on how strict you are about randomization. So apart from the household surveys, there were surveys of blood donors. Uh, there was blood taken from people who just went to a lab for reasons unrelated to COVID-19, people who went for, say, a, a checkup <coughs> and their doctor ordered a bunch of blood tests, uh, they would take some of this blood and test it for antibodies. In one case, volunteers were recruited by Facebook ads. In another case, uh, testing centers were set up in grocery stores and community centers in New York State. <coughs> I don't think any survey can be taken as representative of the general population. What everybody's interested in, really, the bottom line, what percentage tested positive? If, for example, you found a place where 90% of people tested positive, you'd say, oh my goodness, we've reached herd immunity. If it's 1%, uh, you're going to say, we need to keep people locked down because uh, most people are still uninfected and um, it's going to rip through the population if we, if we don't do this. But this, this number that you get, the percentage of people who test antibody positive, is completely unvalidatable. If uh, we have antibodies, so let's say there's 5% of people test positive on antibodies. We assume that in the past they were RNA positive sometime between the date of the, uh, the survey and say the beginning of January. They were RNA positive and either had no symptoms or minor symptoms because they didn't go in and, and get tested. But none of the surveys have proof of this um, by the, the very nature. In fact, in some surveys, if you were known to have been previously RNA positive, you were excluded from the survey. It also assumes that people were antibody negative prior to becoming RNA positive. So it basically says that in 2019, you did not have COVID-19 IgM antibodies or IgG antibodies. But there's no proof of this. There's no evidence for that. 95% of people in this, in this uh, example are antibody negative. And 
Similarly, we assume that these people were never RNA positive. But again, we don't have this evidence. These people have not been tested for COVID, and we don't know that a month ago, some of them weren't positive. And if they were, we'd have to ask, well, are they immune or not? Are we measuring the right antibodies? Are we just missing something that's going to make these people immune? We have no knowledge at all. So the 5% who are positive on antibodies, it could actually be 80% uh, previously infected, or it could be 1%. But what seems to happen is, is you run a bunch of tests, it comes up with 5% positive, and you believe it. Also, nobody considers that given the, ra the radical differences between the test kits, as, as I talked about a few minutes ago, that there would be radically different results. So we got, say, 5% positive on test A, but if we used test B, it might have been 10%, and if we used test C, it might have been 2%. I've often talked about virus purification to validate tests, but you can't use virus purification to validate antibody tests because theoretically the virus is long gone. It's not there. So there's no virus to purify. The only real way that you could validate these tests <coughs> is a lengthy time series where you test people frequently for RNA and for antibodies and watch what happens over time. And if that was done, you would probably discover a lot of silent infections. A man named Dean Beeler, who I do not know, put together a list of um, surveys of people, some antibody surveys, some surveys for um, RT-PCR. I was just interested for this uh, project for the antibodies. Some had quite a high level of people testing positive. <coughs> for example, in a, in a poor part of Boston, they found 32% antibody positive. A household survey in Iran found 22% positive. And a household survey in Germany found 15% positive. But at the other extreme, there were some surveys that found extremely low levels positive. In Oise, France, only 3% of blood donors were positive, and for the same antibodies, almost 26% of high school pupils and staff. In a famous survey uh, run by John Yanidis in Santa Clara County that <coughs> showed that potentially many more people in California were infected than had been infected than were expected, and thus the uh, death rate in California was actually much lower than had previously been calculated, only 1.5% um, were, were positive. There were some indications in the data, in a few cases there were multiple samples taken, that uh, the percentage increased slightly, but generally there were only two or three samples, so it's hard to generalize from such a small number. New York had some interesting data that could be interpreted in two different ways. Uh, New York City and area had much higher levels of antibody-positive people than in rural areas. So one explanation is that the greater density of people in the city allows greater transmission, but another explanation could be greater air pollution. And there, there have been several studies that have shown 
connections between air pollution, increased air pollution and the COVID death rate. So for example, one study in the United States quantified that one microgram per cubic meter of fine particulates is associated with an 8% increase in the death rate. Uh, similar information's been, uh, similar co uh, conclusions have been drawn in China, Italy, and the US related to particulates plus carbon monoxide and nitrogen oxide, and in England with nitrogen oxide, nitrogen dioxide, and ozone. An Italian study showed a high correlation between the number of times particulate matter limits were exceeded in an area and the number of infected, i.e. RNA-positive people. And most of the polluted areas, you won't be surprised, were in northern Italy, the part known as Lombardy. In London, England, also a strong correlation between parts of the city with higher air pollution and a higher number of uh, positive RNA tests. But if we return to the New York data, the highest fraction of people who tested antibody positive, and these were volunteers who were asked to um, uh, submit to a test at a grocery store or a community center, the highest percentages were New York City, 20%, Westchester, Rockland, 14%, and Long Island, 11%. The lowest three areas were what's known as the Southern Tier, 2.4%, the Capital District, 2.2%, and Central New York, 1.9%. The southern tier is a hilly and agricultural area on the southern border of the state. The capital district uh, contains the city of Albany and, and is dependent largely on government, healthcare, and education employment. Uh, central New York contains the city of Syracuse. And while once industrial, this area now provides most employment in, in education, research, healthcare, and services. So this is not proof that air pollution has a correlation with antibody tests, but it's, it's suggestive and something that should be pursued. So let's review the theoretical timeline and see how well it stands up in practice. So pre-infection, there should be no positive tests, but a significant number of old blood samples had antibodies detected. <clears throat> At uh, the time of infection, RNA should be detectable, but the date of infection is a very short time and is generally unknown, so there's really no information about this. The incubation period is the period after infection before there's any symptoms, and uh, there's only limited information on this because we don't know the date of um, infection. Symptomatic resolution, we know when somebody develops symptoms, and it, if uh, s uh, things are measured from the, the date of symptoms, we still have cases where people were negative for all antibodies tested on a particular day, even quite a, a while after the beginning of symptoms, which should not happen. According to the graphs, there should be a steady increase in antibodies. They should not come and go seemingly randomly. But without an actual series from an individual person, you know, measuring their antibodies every day or every few days, it's impossible to say whether there were some people who never had antibodies and some who had them every day, or was it more of a random thing? That data just doesn't exist. The asymptomatic resolution period is really the same as the incubation period for um, people who never have symptoms. They should have antibodies as well as RNA uh, during this time. But most asymptomatic people are not tested for RNA, 
They may be tested for antibodies much later, <coughs> but that tells us nothing about what was happening during their assumed period of being RNA positive. Um, so after the cure, uh, there should be no RNA left in the body, but we, we know that that's not always the case, that people test positive without symptoms uh, a while after having tested negative. A antibodies, IgM and IgG, should both be positive, but there's a significant number of cases where even after symptoms, there are no antibodies. It's difficult to say anything about the asymptomatic resolution phase because most people have not been tested at this point because they've never yet had symptoms and never will. Um, so there's really no information about what the antibody levels IgM and IgG would do during this phase. It might be quite different for people who don't have symptoms as to those who do. The cure phase should be the time when RNA disappears, leaving IgM and IgG antibodies. But there are, of course, a significant number of people who test RNA positive again. And there are people who are IgM and IgG negative, at least on some tests, many days after the first symptoms. So the idea that IgM and IgG are consistently present and detectable does not appear to be um, supported, but then the quality of the data being random samples from certain people on certain days and different people on different days doesn't really allow strong conclusions to be drawn. Post-infection, IgM antibodies should wane and the person should be left with just IgG antibodies. Um, there are, again, people who are test negative with IgG antibodies and there's no evidence, perhaps due to a lack of time to follow up, that IgM antibodies disappear. So in conclusion, the theoretical model for uh, antibody development during COVID-19 um, infection is not really supported. Uh, there's a lack of data, uh, there's contrary data, and there's a lack of good quality data. In summary, positive antibody tests have only been found in a minority of people in the general population, sometimes quite a small minority, down around 1%. Even where the virus is believed to have been circulating for months and for some time before any restrictions were put in place. These fractions, or the 1%, 5%, 30%, are generally taken as the truth, but one would expect a highly infectious virus to have spread much more widely. There's a lot riding on this data. If only a small minority of people have COVID-19 IgG antibodies uh, after an infection is obviously over, then it may be declared by vaccine proponents that natural immunity is not possible and that a vaccine may still be necessary, even mandatory. The faith in this data is hard to understand since there's no evidence that the vast majority of people in the surveys were ever in infected. In other words, there's no information that they were RNA positive at some point in the past. And no evidence that the antibodies seen during the survey were not present in the past, that they're actually truly specific for this supposed new virus. On the other hand, there's also no evidence that the majority who tested negative were truly never infected, that none of them were ever RNA positive at some point in the past. Determining immunity is also virtually impossible. 
it would be ethically problematic to re-challenge people with a virus that's believed to be fatal in some people. There are, however, a significant number of people who test RNA positive after symptoms have resolved and after testing RNA negative. This could be used as evidence that reinfection is possible, strengthening the case for a vaccine. But given that these people are asymptomatic, it may just indicate false positives with immunity. There's no evidence currently that the presence of IgG antibodies prevents people from becoming RNA positive again, or conversely, that the absence of IgG antibodies makes people vulnerable to becoming RNA positive. There just is no data. Proof that a group without COVID-19 IgG antibodies are more vulnerable could not just look at the reoccurrence of RNA because that usually occurs without symptoms. Surely we don't care about how many people uh, get uh, asymptomatic reinfection with COVID-19. Even if occurrence of RNA with symptoms is more common, one would have to show that the overall risk of serious illness and death was higher after adjusting for baseline differences between the groups with and without IgG antibodies. This kind of a logic applies to, to certain cancer screening. You might be able to show that the death rate from a certain cancer is lower, but when you look at the overall death rate of the group, it's actually not any better, and in some cases even higher in the groups that were screened, because deaths are pushed to other categories. The one experiment that could show whether antibody tests are actually meaningful would be a time series of a large number of people who are currently negative on all tests. This experiment would be time-consuming, inefficient, because many people that you were following would never become positive on any tests, so you'd get no useful information from them. It would be intrusive, there would be frequent nasal swabs and blood tests, and obviously, because of all this, very expensive. Those are practical considerations, but in the absence of such an experiment, we're almost totally in the dark about COVID-19 antibody testing, and given the billions being spent on COVID and the trillions being lost by the economy, it surely is not impossible to do some worthwhile science. Finally, if virus was ever purified from people who are RNA positive and symptomatic, this could be used to expose animals and could be used to detect antibodies that are definitively from COVID-19 and not just antibodies to proteins found in cell cultures after the addition of impure materials such as nasal swabs from sick people. Some more feedback. Brian by email, keep speaking up. An anonymous message by email. Thanks, David. Although I've been into this whole virus hoax for a very long time, it's great to see that there's a lot of people starting to wake up to it, and likely because of COVID-19. And you're doing a great service with your podcast and interviews. I just finished watching your interview with Truth or Talk. <coughs> Peter on Facebook, thanks for all your work over the years to bring this suppressed information to light. And he specifically asked for an interview with Andrew Kaufman. This is obviously a little while ago, and now he's got what he wants. Richard, by email, thank you, David, for your brilliant work and your courage. Thank you, uh, Mark. Thank you for your well-timed and bold publication on the coronavirus. You are far too humble, an excellent true scientist, and a wonderfully smooth, non-confrontational journalist who lets, me mo who lets us mostly connect our own dots. But I don't mind when you can help connect them by summarizing. Jorge, uh, on, with a message on PayPal, David, I just wanted to thank you again for all that you do. I've now listened to about 70% of your podcast episodes, if not more, and benefited immensely. You have an incredibly honest, well-spoken, courageous, and thoughtful demeanor. 
at least you come off that way to me. You've obviously described in detail what the CV was going to be like, the coronavirus was going to be like from the minute it got started and oh, so much more. The articles and information you have shared seem to always be at least a few days ahead of even the most astute news sources. It blows my mind how seemingly small your audience on Facebook is. I'm sure it must be bigger than it seems given complex factors. Anyway, I think you are making monumental contributions to the saving of civilization. Thanks again. Brecht, I like the way you explain things to people. You are a good communicator. And I would like to thank everybody who's written to me in so many different ways, uh, Facebook, email, academia.edu, website, uh, PayPal. There's so many ways to communicate. Patreon has messaging as well. I've been receiving messages from all over the place. They're encouraging. People are asking good questions. People are sending me papers saying, you really need to look at this news report or this uh, scientific paper or this government report. I'm getting a lot of information that way, and, and everything that you are doing is, is really helping me pull together um, the information. Uh, you're helping with my research, and I'd just like to give a shout out to everybody who's encouraged me or aided me in my journey. Jaime wrote to me um, in Spanish using the website academia.edu, a rough translation. Excellent commentary on the coronavirus. It's very logical. The method of detection of the virus would definitely better be better if it included visual identification of the virus. We should study if the mo molecule of RNA can be destroyed by ultrasound or a current of millivolts. Everything is focused on the vaccine and not the destruction of the RNA. That would be better. I replied, we don't know that the RNA is viral and we don't know that it's bad. So destroying the RNA would not be good if it's not harmful. But, I mean, if we discover that this RNA, even if it's not viral, is doing the body harm, then certainly looking at other ways other than an RNA virus, which appears to be a very dangerous idea, would be good. John via email. I deeply appreciate what you're doing. Daniel email. I've read your article, Flaws in Coronavirus Pandemic Theory. It's absolutely fantastic. I've shared it with everyone I know. And I'm sure many people will find a lot of answers through it. Annette through Facebook. Oh boy, imagine if people found out that the shots that they've given to their children or themselves in protection against deadly diseases were nothing but a mixture of cell debris and poisons. This stupidity is getting the best of me, though I take comfort in seeming to notice that the number of people questioning the existence of viruses is increasing, perhaps partly thanks to the corona supposed virus, the flaws of which have gotten so obvious that even some children react to them. I think it is also thanks to all the information and, of course, shocking articles, videos, and recordings out there by virus-questioning people like you. The other day, I listened to your interview with James McComsky. Uh, yesterday, I saw your lecture, Rethink All Viruses, which was given in France a couple of years ago. And right now, I'm reading Flaws in Coronavirus Pandemic Theory. Wow, there's so much invaluable information in every one of these pieces. Thank you, David, for your hard work getting, uh, trying to get the truth known to the world. Michael, who must have written from Hawaii, mahalo for your podcast. It's a godsend. Mark via email, kudos to an excellent paper that I'm sure none of the so-called national experts will thank you for. Some feedback on specific podcasts. The Stephen Buston podcast on RT-PCR, 
I really appreciate your work. Today's podcast was so important to understand. On the Remington Nevin uh, podcast, I, I got a nice little note from Remington himself. The interview was great. Thank you so much. Janet, via email, I enjoyed your discussion with Dr. Nevin about the quinine-based anti-malaria drugs being considered for use against COVID-19. Two things struck me. One, Dr. Nevin's frequent statements that the medical community simply don't know when it comes to what is truly happening with how these are affecting human physiology. A declaration that, in my jaded opinion, applies to sloppy medical science in general. And two, there's a world of difference between how people used bark from a cinchona tree to protect against malaria and the synthesized modern versions of the substance, much like how people in mountainous areas of South America might chew on coca leaves to deliver a slight stimulant to themselves and their pack animals versus how we in the civilized world decided it was smart to extract the pure poison from the plant to stick up our noses. I would suspect that the natural defense mechanisms of such plant are meant to limit consumption by predators and ensure the plant's survival and the substances were not meant to be used by us in pure or now synthesized form. Sort of, if a little bit works well, maybe a lot will be even better. No drug is going to be physiological compatible with our bodies, and just because some people do not seem to experience negative effects does not mean that negative effects are not occurring. On the Andrew Kaufman podcast, Felix by email, especially great show this week, Kathleen I really enjoyed it. The science and testing procedures were explained well. Thank you. So Thank you for listening to episode 255 of The Infectious Myth. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion for a future guest, please email me at david.crow, crow with an E, at theinfectiousmyth.com. Like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at infectiousmyth. Commit to monthly donations of any amount to Infectious Myth on patreon.com or liberatopay.com. Don't forget we have a new discussion group that's accessible through the facebook.com slash the Infectious Myth page. And the difference with the page is that you can post on the group. Until next week, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.